Stay hungry, stay foolish. The questions we grapple with in today's show are not about transistors and neurons and algorithms and such. They are about the nature of reality, humanity and mind. The confusion happens when we begin with, what jobs will robots take from humans instead of what are humans? Until we answer that second question, we can't meaningfully address the first. We welcome serial entrepreneur, founder and CEO of GigaOM, and author of The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity, Byron Reese. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's great to have you on the show. I love the book, particularly because you wrote it to provide information rather than confirmation, which is a difficult thing to do. You park your own opinion and you provide us with information to make informed decisions, which really syncs with this ethos of this show. So bravo for that, Byron. Thank you. So you start the book by saying the most distinctive characteristic of the last century or so might seem to be the enormous amount of change that has occurred. But in the bigger scheme of things, not that much has changed at all. That's right. When you take a long view of humanity, what you can see is we learned this trick early on, this trick of technology, which was a method by which we could multiply what we're able to do. And that's really where everything in our modern world comes from, because you know your body uses something like 100 watts of power, and, and that's it. That's all you have. And unless you can figure out a way to magnify that through technology, that's a limit on what you can do. And I think there have been four times in the past that we've we've done something technologically so profound that it isn't it's it's like a whole different direction that humanity is set off on and i think the first of these was 100,000 years ago when we got language which is our singular ability as a species it's why you know a dozen people can take down a mammoth because we can coordinate our actions and we got that when we got fire because that let us cook our food and increase our caloric intake and all that and then i think it happened a second time 10,000 years ago when we got agriculture and i don't think agriculture in and of itself was the big deal what happened is when you had agriculture you settled down and then you built cities and with cities you got the division of labor and that's you know that says you specialize and i specialize we both can be better off and that's what gave us prosperity and then the third time things changed was well it was really a coincidence these two technologies that happened at the same exact moment uh, one was the wheel and one was writing and when you get wheel, the wheel and the writing together, you have everything you need for a nation state. And both of those happened like 5,000 years ago. And in that moment, you kind of instantly got these huge empires around the world. You got Mesopotamia, Mesoamerica, and Indus and the Po, and the, the Nile River Basin and, and the rest, all because these technologies happened. And I wrote this book because I don't think things have really changed a lot since since the last 5,000 years. But I think they're about to change. And it's because of two new technologies also that are coming on the scene, all kind of coincidentally at the same time. And those are artificial intelligence, a method by which we can take our brains and some of what they do and put them in and get a machine to do them. And robots, I'm sorry, where we take what some of what our bodies do and get machines to do them. And to me, the big interesting question is, well, once you build machines that can do what your brain and body do, then, well, 
you know, what's next for humans? And I love this because I'm going to go back over those technologies that you talked about, because I think the way you build it in the book is what really brings it to life, because we don't look upon things that change humanity as technologies. And I love the way you introduce fire and you, and you even talk about the story of Prometheus and how fire became the first human technology. I'd love if you shared that with our audience. The full story is kind of fun. Prometheus and his brother were put in charge of making the animals for Earth. And they're given this box of gifts that they can give them speed and flying and all of these things. And Prometheus's brother, he just starts slapping stuff together, makes an eagle and makes of this. And he starts giving them, you know, the ability to run fast and the ability to, to fly. And, you know, Prometheus is really careful and he just works on one. He just makes humans and he makes them walk upright the way the gods did. And then when he came to give them a gift, he saw his brother, like, used them all up. There weren't any left over. And you could just see him, like, looking in the box saying, you know, dude, really? You used all of them <laughs> up? Uh, and so what he did is something he wasn't supposed to do, which he gave us fire. And for that, he was punished horrifically. The reason Zeus didn't want us to have fire was the power it would give us. Let us move to different parts of the world. It let us master animals. Eventually, it let us do metallurgy. It let us cook our food. I mean, it was this technology. We learned to harness it very effectively. So I think that set us off on our technological journey. Yeah. And I love the way you talk about how it's the game changer. We were able to eat foods, proteins. We were able to eat plants that we couldn't eat before because it broke down the cellulose. And therefore, it gave us higher caloric intake. And that led to the growth of our brain from this more limbic system to a more neocortex and more intelligence growth. A little known fact that if you order a steak at a restaurant, and they say, how do you want it cooked? If you cook it well done, it has more calories in it, measurably more, like 20% more calories than if you cooked it rare. And that is because cooking food, in essence, predigests it. It unlocks, unwinds proteins that are undigestible by people, and that all of a sudden they are. So the, if you cook it, it has more calories. And what happened is... Hunting and gathering was always kind of an iffy game. If you eat only raw food, it's actually quite hard to get enough calories to power you. And this was a big game changer because we could cook food and essentially superpower the food. And when we ate it, we grew our brains. That's what we did with the calories. We grew our brains. And that's why your brain uses 20% of all the calories you consume, whereas an animal, I mean, even a higher animal, uses maybe 8 or 10 and so we went all in on the brain. And that was a big gamble because if you add something that takes 400 calories a day to maintain, it better be doing you some good. And it turned out to be a very good bet for humanity. We're where we are on this planet because we're the smartest thing on it. And that's because we were able to increase our caloric consumption. You know, it's an interesting question. Will we still be the most powerful thing on the planet? when we are no longer the smartest, but I'm getting ahead of myself there. Yeah, absolutely. I love the way you build this because you get us to the fourth age, talking about these technological changes. And I love your definition of technology as well. It'd be great if you share that because I love the way you talk about how it's something that is the application of a knowledge to an item, a process, or a technique. Right. We use the term very loosely. We talk about technology, but... I'm really interested in like, well, what is it? Like effectively speaking, it's one of those things that everybody kind of knows what it is, but until you can articulate it, you don't really, I don't know, appreciate the full import. And, and what it, its effect is, is that it multiplies what we're able to do. 
more people can hear you because you're using technology than if you were just sitting out on on the street corner uh, interviewing me because you're using technology. And it is what you just said, the application of knowledge to something. The old saying that knowledge is power is true. And it's that knowledge that we use to multiply what we're able to do. You know, I mentioned we use 100 calories to, to power us. And we learned how to harness oxen to plow. And an ox eats twice as much as you do. So it's 200 watts of power constantly. And if you were somebody who got an ox and you could plow, you tripled your capability. You went from 100 calories, you, to 300 calories. And then what we learned to do with steam and new technology was effectively consume more calories. I mean, you can measure the caloric content of coal. It's less efficient to convert it, but you can still figure out like how many calories you are using. And then, you know, all the way up to the present day. And in the West, we use 10,000 watts of power constantly. So your body uses 100, and then you use another 10,000 watts of power. And that's essentially 100 people doing your bidding, 100 people cooling your home, 100 people laying streets for you, all because you've learned that we've learned this trick collectively. There is nothing that correlates to standard living better than power consumption. The more power you're able to consume, the more you're able to multiply it yourself, and the higher is your standard of living. And that power consumption came, firstly, as you say, from the fire, burning more calories, being able to outsource the digestion, essentially. But then the growth of the brain gave us a new technology, which you mentioned briefly earlier on, which was language, which developed our brains even further. Yeah. And if I were writing the book today, I may not have even said language because animals you could say, have a kind of language. I really think what it was was stories more than language. Stories are how you could envision other things. Like, hey, if you went around that side of the mammoth and I went around that side, stories are the way you could learn what somebody else did. You know, Og went up and pulled that tiger's tail while it was sleeping, and Og, you know, was eaten. Um, (laughs) And really, that's what I think it is, is that's the essence of language. It's the ability to tell stories. And therefore, you're able to turn experience kind of into technology. You're able to convey these experiences. You can actually know something without experiencing it. And that is, I think, what gives us our modern world and our abilities. Then that idea of storytelling made humanity be able to communicate with each other in order to spread the word of, hey, this thing, agriculture like fire, is a new technology that we can use to advance the species even further. That's exactly right. I mean, I'm fascinated by storytellers. I have to say, though, the minute we outsource these things, the minute you use fire to pre-digest your food, the minute you use writing to remember things, they change you and you become less able to do those things. And I, I mean, it's, it's true. People in the ancient world used to have vastly better memories than we had because And I don't mean far ancient, I mean like Roman times, because if you couldn't write something down and you couldn't look something up, then if you wanted to know something, you better remember it. And we know stories of of a Roman general who knew the names of all 20,000 of his troops and the names of their their family members. I mean, I can't remember my, you know, pin number for my bank account. And, you know, Plato, by the way, clued in on this. I don't know if I mentioned this in the book, but... You do, yeah, you do. Yeah, he said... You know, with writing, you haven't invented a system to remember anything. 
only to remind you of things that you have forgotten. And he predicted that if, when you have widespread technology writing, your memories would suffer. And so these technologies, they superpower us, the capital U-us, like what you're able to do. But, you know, me and a smartphone are smarter than me alone. But take the smartphone away and I'm, I might be worse off than I would. It's known as digital dementia, is this outsourcing, and then you, uh, right. you lose. Actually, I had never heard that. Yeah, digital dementia. And we see this everywhere. Like, do you hear about the study with the London taxi cab drivers who... Of course, right. the knowledge, yeah. right. Yeah, because they compared the, 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 the London taxi drivers to the London bus drivers. And the London taxi drivers had to learn all the streets. And their brains grew when they did that. Is, is that the one? Absolutely, yeah. I find that stuff absolutely fascinating. So first, fire let us cook, which developed our brains, which gave us language. Then agriculture let us settle down and build cities and accumulate wealth. And as you say, only 5,000 years ago, writing brought us the third age. Knowledge could be then copied and transported around the world, which meant society could communicate with each other more than it ever could before. Yeah, it, it meant that what you knew could live independently of you. It meant that what you knew could travel in multiple directions at once. It meant that laws could be propagated. You know, before, knowledge was a very fragile thing. You may have lived your whole life in a village of 150 people. And if somebody picked you up and dropped you 20 miles away, you may never get home. Like, you had so little knowledge of the outside world that, and then if you died, everything you knew was forgotten unless you taught it to somebody, but they may have misremembered it. Eventually, they forgot. And so you could see how progress would be so slow if nothing was written down. And then all of a sudden, we learn this trick. We're going to you know, write things down and to remember them. It's an interesting debate about what were the first things we wrote down. Were they inventories? And so it was really a, a market thing that created it. Were they uh, religious texts? Was it religion that created it? We don't really know. We do know that once writing took hold, and it appears to have developed kind of independently in multiple places, it was so useful. At the beginning, only a few people could do it, but it was so useful that we quickly found value in everybody doing it. You know, it's hard to believe that it's only 5,000 years old because you can count those generations. That's under 100 generations of people that you could get back to when that we didn't have writing. And what that means is that everything older than that is literally prehistoric. So dice are prehistoric. Beer is prehistoric. These things re predate. It's kind of like, you know, sharks on this planet are older than trees. And, and when you, you know, you just start to think about something you, you assume has been here kind of forever is actually quite new. And writing is like that. And then, like I said, it's just a coincidence that we got the wheel at the same moment. And history only really begins the written age 5,000 years ago, which is fascinating. And this is what I loved, the way you build the book up to the fourth age. Writing meant that rulers could create legal codes and that those codes could be distributed and enforced, which gave way to wealth and money appearing during the Third Age as well, which is interesting because this is where the division of wealth started as well. That is very true. When we all hunt and, and gather, there was no wealth. You might have found a uh, handful of grub worms, and you could have hoarded those grub worms, but the next day they'd be dead and you know, you're no better off. So you had no way to accumulate any wealth. And frankly, no interest in it because you unquestionably would be, if every day you had to kind of gather 
what you were going to eat that day, you were going to be sick. And so you would need somebody else to gather for you. And so you had to gather for other people. So you had this kind of loose communal sharing. You had to. And the minute you had excess, the minute you had surplus, and the minute you could store wealth, you could build silos and store grain, you could accumulate cattle. That was, you know, the earliest coins had a cow's face on them because that was probably the earliest form of wealth were accumulating uh, herd animals. And uh, the minute you could do that, what we found is that some people were more talented than others, and therefore some people accumulated more wealth than others. And that was really a function of technology. I mean, if technology multiplies what you're able to do, technology allows people to make more wealth. And and the more technology you get, the more division of labor, uh, division of rich and poor you get. Napoleon talked about this very explicitly, and he said, you know, one of the real challenges of technology is that it allows the rich to get ever richer. And so he had kind of mixed feelings about it because, you know, those would be challenges to his power and all that. But if we went back in time a thousand years and Bill Gates and I worked on a farm together and he had a hoe and I had a hoe, we would be about the same, you know, because we don't have any technology. Flash forward to the modern world, you know, he has all all of his wealth and I don't because he has figured out a way to use technology to multiply what he's able to do. And that is how we we got the rich and the poor. And then as I write, there are all kinds of things that the rich built society in the Aztecs restricted smelling of certain flowers only to the wealthy. And, and so you started kind of bifurcating society as well. And you, you had hereditary monarchies emerge and you, I mean, you can just kind of see it all developing and understand why things are the way they are today. It's one of the things I loved about the book because I loved the historical aspect of it, the way you build it. And the final build before we jump to the fourth age, to the today's age, is you talk about the division of labor and the massive impact that that had on society. Yeah, that's what they call one of the only free lunches in economic theory. And it's super powerful. I mean, you know, the Adam Smith wrote you know, that was 1776. And he probably wrote the most eloquently about it where he said, you know, I went into these pen factories and it would take one and a person would make the pen. They would string the wire, then they would cut it, then they would sharpen it. And then they would do all the stuff to it. And a person may make a pen a day, but he said, what the minute you broke that up into steps and you just had one person work on this step and one person work on this step and one person work on this step, you got more than a hundredfold increase in productivity. And that's why, you know, I don't work harder than my great-grandparents, but I live a more lavish life than they lived, in part because I have technology to multiply what I'm able to do, and in part because I specialize, and society has become more specialized. For 10,000 years after we invented agriculture, 90% of us farmed, you know, up until the 1750s in the West, 90% of us farmed. And there's not a lot of division of labor in that. If everybody's having to grow beans and everybody's growing peas, you know, there isn't a lot of specialization. So economic growth is highly limited. And it's only uh, the minute you have specialization that you you can have wealth. And, uh, and that was a long time in coming because for the longest time, it just took kind of all of us to grow our food. And, you know, we, we saw early glimpses of it. You had the Italian Renaissance, for instance, 
and you were still in a world where 90% or more were farming, and then you had people who were in the military, and then you had the clergy, and then you had a very, very few people left over to be Michelangelo and to be Da Vinci and to be Raphael. And so we got glimpses of it. And what, what happened is we live in an era now where we have the internet. And what we found is that we all kind of became Da Vinci's and, and Michelangelo's and I guess uh, Dante's. You invent blogs, a hundred million people start writing. You know, in Dante's day, there were just a few people who could write and they were probably among the best, but now everybody can. And then we invented YouTube and all of a sudden a billion videos get uploaded and you invent iTunes and all of a sudden the amount of music blossoms and you invent all these technologies. You, you invented um, comments on Amazon and these places and all of a sudden everybody wants to comment about the world. Everybody wants to weigh in. And and what happens is, is that you might have assumed if you went back in the Renaissance time, well, there are only a few people who had this talent, only a few Dantes. And all of that. But it turns out everybody, all humans, have the urge to create something. All humans have the urge to beautify something. All humans have the urge to express themselves. And what technology has done is it has empowered everybody to do it. It's, it is like we live in the Renaissance, but supercharged, because everybody is a creator. And sure, there's a lot of talentless people who are creating a lot of stuff. That isn't the point. The point is that, that there's a lot of magnificent things being created by vastly more people than ever before. I think of my father's generation, and my father for that matter. Um, I'm 50. He's 80. When he left university in, say, 1960, he probably never wrote another word after that. Probably never wrote a word. You know, maybe a letter to the editor or something. But why would he? And we write every day, all day long. And, you know, my father never made a video. He never recorded a podcast. He never did any of that. And, and you wouldn't think, well, that's because he didn't, you know, he just wasn't very smart. What we have found is that it's just because the technology didn't exist. And now that we have the technology and the division of labor, we're all creators. As you note in the book, the signature innovations up until Today's age, the fourth age, were more evolutionary, but today's are revolutionary. And one of the revolutionary aspects of society is Moore's law. But more importantly, and the lesser known one, the observation made by Ray Kurzweil, I'd love if you explained that one. Sure, sure. This was a big deal. So Gordon Moore, 53 years ago, one of the founders of Intel, still alive. You know, that's how recent all this history is that so many of these people, the modern world is so young. You know, the first person to, we've been to the moon. In fact, we went to the moon 50 years ago, right? I mean, not, that's old news. But the first person to break the sound barrier, Chuck Yeager, he's still alive and he knew one of the Wright brothers. He knew one of the Wright brothers. And so that's how fast these technologies kind of change. You go from the Wright brothers to Chuck Yeager, who's still alive, and here we are. We went to the moon half a century ago. But um, Gordon Moore, another one of these kind of giants in the field, made an observation that he said, you know, the power of computers seems to be doubling every two years, and I think it's going to go on for a while longer. And that was kind of it. And and he was right. The power of computers had been doubling and uh, has continued to this day. 
And then along came Ray Kurzweil that you mentioned, and he said, you know, what's interesting is it's been going on for a long time, 120 years, maybe 500 years, I don't know, but 120 years. And what's fascinating about it is computers went through five different technologies in that time. The first ones were mechanical, you know, you, you, you wound them. And then you had ones with relays that opened and closed. And then you had tubes. And then you had transistors. And then you had microprocessors. So a microprocessor and a mechanical computer don't have anything in common, right, other than what they tried to do. So how is it that for 120 years, this law has been in lockstep? Like Every two years, it doubles. Every two years, it doubles. Every two years, it doubles. Even though the technology keeps changing. Nobody knows the answer to this, by the way. Nobody knows. If you figure it out, call the Nobel Committee because, you know, you got, a, you got a prize coming to you. Nobody knows why technology does this. Then other smart people came along and they said, you know, it's fascinating. It isn't just computers that do this doubling. All technology does. It doubles over a specific period of time. It may not be two years. Maybe it doubles every five years, every 20 years, every nine months, but it doubles and doubles and doubles and doubles and doubles and doubles and doubles ad infinitum. And again, nobody knows why. Some people think that multicellular life does the same thing. It doubles in complexity, I think, every 150 million years. And if you go backwards, it means that life is older than the planet is. That would imply we came from someplace else, or at least the cells that became us came from someplace else. And so this is this big idea that technology has this attribute, this doubling. And what happens is people often don't appreciate what all this doubling does. And it's there's a good reason for that. It's because nothing in your life does that. You don't have two kids, then four, then eight, then 16, then 32, then 64. Your bank account doesn't go 100 euros, 200, 400, 800. It just doesn't. Nothing does that. So we're bad at estimating what a big deal it is. And there's a story about the creation of the game of chess, where the man who invented it brought it to the ruler a thousand years ago, present-day India, and said, I have invented chess. And the ruler said, this is fantastic. What would you like? And he said, I am a humble man. Just put a grain of rice on the first square of the chessboard and then put two grains on the second and then four and then eight and then 16. And I just want the rice on the 64th square. So you say, well, how much rice is that? And, and, and you know, the purpose of the illustration is you're going to guess too low. So guess really, really big. But the, the fact of the matter is it's more rice than has ever been grown in the history of planet Earth. And by the way, when the ruler found this out, he had the man put to death, and there's another lesson to be learned from that. <laughs> but the main lesson is nobody thinks that, and nobody thinks that way. Nobody says, oh, I bet that's more rice than it's ever been. And what it really means is that it took us 3,000 years to get from the abacus to the iPad. But in just 25 years, we'll have something as far ahead of the iPad as it is ahead of the abacus. And it means something, I think, even bigger, and that is that if technology advances and doubles and doubles and doubles, I think it means that we will solve all technical problems. And let me, let me explain that. So first of all, there's a lot of problems that aren't technical, and technology is not going to help us with those. But there are a range of problems that are just technical. There's no reason they have to be. We just haven't figured them out yet. And 
if technology, if, if they're technical problems, they have technical solutions. And if we don't have the technical solution today, just wait. So you, you take something like disease. Disease is a technical problem. You don't have to have disease. And I believe, you know, if you're listening to this, you're going to live to see the end of disease. And, and you say, well, how can you say that? And you say, well, the worst disease ever was smallpox. And, and we developed a cure for that. I mean, a, a vaccine against that in the 1700s before we even, before germ theory had been put forth, before we even knew it was caused by germs. Um, Jonas Salk made the, the Salk vaccine to defeat polio. And he didn't have any technology. He didn't have a computer. He lived in a time of stone knives and bear skins and, and on and on. And, what, and so these things that are just technical problems that we defeated back when we had very little technology. Imagine now, imagine you can take a pathogen and you know, sequence its genome and model it in a computer and try 10,000 cures in a minute. And so I think that is a technical problem that we will solve. Aging might be one. You only age and grow old for four reasons, and they all look like technical problems to me. Uh, hunger. You don't have to have – the earth does not strain to feed the people on it. Far from it. I mean, my country, the United States, throws away enough food to feed all the hungry people in the world. Uh, so that's just a technical problem. How do you grow more food with less resources? That's just technology. Um, poverty. Poverty is a technical problem. You don't have to have poor people. And, you know, and, and to say we'll eliminate poverty, well, half the people in the world still live on, on less than three euro a day. And so that's a big statement. But but again, if if technology increases productivity and technology doubles in capability, then our productivity will all go up and it's all going up and that will overcome poverty. So I think there's a range of problems that technology will solve, and it's like mathematically certain. It isn't a speculation or a hope. And again, there's a lot of problems that aren't technical. There's hatred and envy and greed and bigotry and all the rest. And technology. in the end, our great challenge is all to become better people. And I don't know that technology helps with that a lot, but there are certain problems that technology can really end once and for all. That only seems odd to us because we know enough history to know we've always had hungry people. We've always grown old and died. We've always had poor people and the rest of it. But we're finally at this point where our technology is growing at a rate. We're finally up there on square 60 of the chessboard and 61 of the chessboard. Where When you double it, it's a big deal. It's a lot of rice. It's a huge step forward. And then you double it again. And then you double it again. And that's the world we're in. And again, you mentioned it's not just one technology that's advancing at the moment. It's colluding technologies. And it's worth mentioning, in line with Moore's Law and in line with these doublings, is the dramatic reduction in the price per gigaflop. That is correct. That is correct. It's the price of computation that's falling. You don't have to kind of think of it in the power of computers doubling. It's really the price of computation plummets. And once computation becomes effectively free, all problems that are inherently computational become effectively free to solve. And there's a lot of problems that are like that. Look, I'm not blind to all of the challenges the world faces. Don't get me wrong. You know, we're a skittish species. We, uh, 
we have earned it honestly, though. And somebody, I don't even know who it was, said it was far better for our ancestors to see a rock and to think it was a bear and run away from it than for them to see a bear and think, eh, it's just a rock and not to run away. So it's always been better for us to be skittish and frightened and to scamper off and hide. And that has served us well. But what it has made us is natural pessimists. It's made us always think, oh, well, that could be a bear. It's not a rock. It's a bear. And even when it's a rock, we still think, oh, that might still be a bear. That's what's inside of us. That's what powers us. And in the cold light of day, when we can see everything clearly, we can say, ah, it's just a rock. I understand why people are worried about what technology can do. It's far easier to see the bad it can do than to imagine the good. It's like the internet. You know, when the internet came out, people said, oh, what's this going to do to jobs? You know, you're going to have no more travel agents. You're going to have no more stockbrokers. You're going to have no more yellow pages or whatever you have in, in Europe, the big book you get with all the businesses in it. You're going to have no more newspapers and you're going to have all these things. And they would have been right about every single one of them, every one of them. But nobody saw Etsy and eBay and Google and Amazon and Airbnb and Uber, a million new businesses, job, more jobs with new names than we ever could have imagined. Nobody could imagine any of that. So we're programmed to always see the bad half of something and we're unable almost to see the good half. And so when I sit here and talk about all these things that technology is going to do, you know, it'll, there'll be no hunger and, and all the children will know how to read and all these other things. It isn't because I'm ignorant or blind to the misuses of technology, but because I know that more people on this planet want to do good than evil. We know this because we never would have made it to where we are if most of us were bad. More people want to build than destroy. We know this. We could not have had progress if it wasn't for that and that we've gotten this far. You know, there was a time when we were an endangered species that there were less than a thousand breeding pairs of humans. Genetically, they think that about 75,000 years ago, a thousand breeding pairs of humans. And what would you have bet on us then? Like, oh, that's going to be the species that, you know, runs everything and goes to the moon. You wouldn't. And yet, we overcame all that adversity with limited technology because more people were good than bad. And now we have all this technology to multiply what we're able to do and the good we're going to be able to do in the universe. People have dreamed of utopias for a long time. And they've always been that. They've just been these dreams. And we were kind of raised thinking, well, those are just dreams. But we're actually going to be the people that can create that world. Not because we're better. We just happen to be lucky to be born at the time when the technology has surpassed scarcity, when we now have the technology to overcome these problems. And so we can actually build these things. It's just a matter of will at this point. It's not a matter of can we. You know, I said at the start of the, the show, you give information and not confirmation, but there's an underlying technological optimist in there, and that certainly comes across. But I mentioned this as well in the introductions of the show. One of the big questions you have to ask before you ask about the future of humanity is what it means to be human. And there's three fundamental questions that underpin the book. They're not technical questions, but philosophical ones. Yes. I was really curious why so many people had such different opinions about 
what seem like straightforward questions. What, what will computers be able to do? Will they be able to have emotions and think and be creative? What are they going to be able to do? What will robots be able to do? And, or can you build a machine that can do the work of any human? Not just a bricklayer, but a poet. Can you build that machine? Like, those are questions you would think would be knowable. If you ask, can people go to Mars? You say, yeah, probably. When do you think we'll get there? I don't know, 10 to 40 years. You know, and everybody would agree with that. But when you ask these questions about automation and artificial intelligence and robots, you get people all over the map, all over. And I mean smart people who are in the industry. And I was very curious about why that was. And I, I think it boils down, as you said, is it's not really, you don't have to know anything about technology to answer these questions. And I'll pose them if I can. I'll pose the first one at least. The first one is, what are you? You, the listener, what are you? And I'm going to give you three choices. The first choice is you are a machine. You're a machine. You're a, a self-sustaining chemical reaction. You're a bag of electrical impulses and chemicals. If I knew where every atom in your body was, what direction it was heading, I could copy that. I would just build another you, and that would be as you as you are. Like you're a machine. That's what you are. The second choice is you are a, an animal. And that goes, well, you have a mechanistic body, but you also have this animating force. You have life, and life isn't mechanistic. Life is something beyond mechanics. And then you have a third choice, which is you're a human being. And of course, we're humans. We know that. But it means something different. It means, yes, you have a mechanistic body. Yes, you're an animal. But there's something else about you that separates you from animals and machines. And some people may think, well, I have a soul. And some people may say, I have consciousness. And some people say, I have sophisticated language. I can think in abstract thoughts. Whatever it is, there's something different than you, than, than animals and machines that you are. Now, the fascinating thing is that when I put these questions, when I put them on my website and ask that question of people who just come to my website, 85% say they are humans. But I also happen to host a podcast about artificial intelligence. And the people that come on the podcast, many, most from Silicon Valley, uh, all working on AI. Like These are all the big brain AI people in the world. Um, when I ask them that question, and I keep count of this, I've had 100 guests, and 95% of them, 95 of them, have all answered the question, I am a machine. When I wrote that in my book, my editor from New York wrote in the, in the margin, does anybody really think that? And it's like, yeah, yeah, like everybody in Silicon Valley believes that. And they don't just kind of go, hmm, I guess they're very explicit. Of course I am a machine. What else would I be? And if you think that, then someday we'll build a mechanical you. If you are a machine, then someday we'll build a mechanical person. And then two years later, they'll be twice as powerful. And two years later, they'll be twice as powerful. And then someday they'll be so powerful, you can't even relate to them. But if you're not a machine, you're not a machine, then that means no machine can ever do what you can do. And there are these inherent limits to what computers can do. Another way to think of it is, is a thought experiment put forth by a professor at Berkeley. And this is called the Chinese room experiment. And it goes like this. 
there's this room, giant room with all these very special books in it. And in the room is a library, is a, what we call the librarian. And the important thing about the librarian is she speaks no Chinese, doesn't know a word of Chinese. That's important. Now, outside of the, of the room, there are Chinese speakers, and they write questions in Chinese so that they're writing the symbols on pieces of paper. They're sliding them under the door, and she picks them up, but she knows no Chinese. But what she does know is how to do this. She takes the first character on that question, and she finds a book that has that on the spine. And she flips and turns and look and finds a second character in that book. And that directs her to another book where she looks up the third character to another book to look up the fourth all the way to the end. And the last character she looks up in the book, it says, copy this down. And she copies these symbols down. She doesn't understand, you know, that she doesn't. And she writes them all down and she slides that note back under the door. And the Chinese speaker outside picks it up and reads it, and it's brilliant Chinese. It's poetic, and it rhymes, and it's pithy, and it's philosophically important, and it's beautiful. And so the question, the question is, does the librarian understand Chinese? Does the librarian understand Chinese? Now, people on my show, by and large, say, well, of course she understands Chinese. You can't have a conversation with somebody in Chinese and then say they don't understand Chinese. Um, and by the way, this room passes the Turing test. Those Chinese speakers outside of the room have every reason to believe somebody in that room understands Chinese because they're sliding questions, getting answers, right? But the point is, is that this is all a computer does is it takes a symbol and it looks it up in memory and it goes to another location in memory and another location and then it outputs something. But it doesn't, you know, understand what it's outputting. Or does it? Now, a lot of people look at that and say, no, the, the, the librarian doesn't understand Chinese. She just has this trick that makes it look like she understands Chinese. And that's really the central question, which is, if the librarian doesn't understand Chinese, then a computer can never understand anything. And if a computer can't understand anything, you can never really have artificial intelligence. You can't have true intelligence without understanding anything. There's one final exam example of thought experiment like this, and it's called the problem with Mary. Mary is a hypothetical person who knows everything there is to know about color. Like at a godlike level, she knows everything about color. She knows how photons and light hit your eye, how that stimulates um, the cones and sends a signal to your brain and how your brain processes it and how your brain perceives it. She knows everything about color. But as you may guess, she's never seen color. She's in a room that's black and white. And then one day she opens the door, she goes outside, and she sees red for the first time. And the question is, did she learn anything? Did she learn anything when she saw red for the first time? You may say, no, she knew everything about color. She learned nothing by seeing it. She knew everything about it. But if she knew everything, what, what, what more could she learn by seeing it? But somebody else may say, no, knowing something and experiencing something are two different things. And if you think that, by the way, you're what's known as a dualist. If you think that, that knowing something and experiencing something are different, then 
it's unclear that computers can ever experience anything. They can never experience the world. They can measure temperature perfectly, but they can never feel warmth. And if that's the case, you can never have artificial intelligence. If a computer can't experience anything, then then it's incredibly limited in what it can do. It can just measure things. It may be able to simulate intelligence, but it can never actually be intelligent. Let's use that then to jump onto the idea of robotics. So this future of the robots running the world powered by AGI, so artificial general intelligence, and the challenges of that, because a robot's very good at doing a very singular, isolated task. And as you said, in the world of division of labor, we all became specialists, and specialism is what a robot does, especially the more defined the task, the better the robot is at it. But there's so many basic, basic things we take for granted as humans that a robot is miles away from doing. Right. I mean, I think, just to lay my cards on the table, in the book, I try to present all these different views as honestly and straightforward as I can with no biases. I try to explain them all, understand them, talk about their pros and cons. But to be very clear, I don't think robots can do most of what people do. I think people are magnificently uh, versatile and complex. And I think robots are very simplistic. And I don't even know that they're capable of doing the kinds of things we can do. You know, they, they're really good if you're in a factory of, of, of welding the same spot over and over. Like they're really good at repetitive motion in a very controlled circumstance. But if you ask them to um, be a waiter at a restaurant where all of a sudden, you know, somebody says, my son, just my little baby just spit up. Can I get a rag? I wanted more pepperoni on my pizza, whatever, like all of the versatile, rich tapestry involved in that job of every kind of person and situation being different. That's a nightmare scenario for a robot. And you made a reference to an AGI just a second ago. And I guess maybe we should lay that groundwork real quickly, which is when people say AI, they actually mean two different things. And it's super important to know what people are talking about. So one of them is what we call narrow AI, and that's an artificial intelligence that can do one thing. And we know how to do this now. So uh, a spam filter in your email program that identifies spam, we can build that. And that's a narrow AI. But don't ask it to make you coffee. I mean, it doesn't know what coffee is. The, the, the program that routes you through traffic, that's narrow AI. And the way we do it, by the way, is kind of interesting. We take data about the past. And we get a computer to study it and make projections into the future. That's all it is. It's just take data about the past, look for patterns, project them into the future. And therefore, it only works in a very few places where the future is just like the past. Um, it can identify cats because a cat tomorrow looks a lot like a cat yesterday. But there's many things that approach just doesn't do. Now, the other thing people mean by AI, though, is what you just referred to, artificial general intelligence. This is something we don't know how to build. And that is a statement 100% of the people in AI would agree with. Everybody agrees we don't know how to build it. And that's an AI as versatile as a human. It's creative. It's witty. It's smart. Ask it to make you coffee. It'll do it. Ask it what you should get your spouse for, for Christmas. It'll, it'll 
help you out. It'll figure it out. So, and we don't, we see that in the movies. We see C3PO and we see the commander data and all of that, but nobody knows how to build it. Now, when I ask people on my show, when will we build that? They say the range is five to 500 years. That's what I have heard. And from all my guests, which is not very helpful. Yeah. <laughs> um, Right. I mean, if you dropped your dry cleaning off and they said it'll be ready in five to 500 days, you'll get a new dry cleaner. Yeah. Um, but all it means is we don't know how to build it. And everybody, but then you say, well, how do you know we're going to build it? And they say, well, it's simple. We're machines. And if we're machines, we're intelligent. Someday we'll build them an intelligent machine. And so we only know how to do, and many people, a minority of AI people, I, I have to say, don't think a general intelligence is possible. I don't. I, I think it's a highly, I think it's an open question as to whether we can ever build a general intelligence. I, I think it's a real leap to say, well, we have brains, we don't know how they work, and we have minds. That is, we're creative and a, and a moat, and we don't know how that happens. And we're conscious. We experience the world. We feel warmth. We see red. We experience red. And yet, we don't know how we do that either, but we're going to build it all someday. We're going to build it. We don't know how we do it. We're going to build it. I, I think that's unproven. So when people say, you know, are you worried about AI? Well, it's like, which of those two things are you talking about? The first one, narrow AI, the only thing people worry about that is, is it going to take jobs, right? Nobody worries your spam filter is going to try to take over the world or anything like that. When you hear these Silicon Valley titans say, you know, like Elon Musk says, AI is an existential threat. And Stephen Hawking, the late Stephen Hawking said, it may be the last thing we make or allowed to make, or it may be our last invention. They're not talking about AI the way we know how to do it. They're talking about this other thing we don't know how to build, this general intelligence that would have all these capabilities that we don't know how to build. It's Worth pointing out, by the way, very few people are working on general intelligence. Probably 99.9% of the money in AI goes to solve a simple problem. How do I spot tumors in an x-ray? The number of people working on a general intelligence is probably, I don't know, a dozen groups, Carnegie Mellon, OpenAI, Google. I mean, there's very few people working on general intelligence. Um and so that's kind of the the, 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 the the landscape. And so when when we when we talk about jobs and robots, I assume the question you're asking me is about narrow AI, this thing we know how to do. This other one that's like super smart creative robot like Ultron in the Avengers movies, um, that's a whole different thing. And I, I don't have any reason to think that can even exist. But if you ask me about robots with this narrow AI, then the only concern people have is around jobs. And I don't actually have that concern. The reason I don't have that concern is technology only does one real thing, is it increases productivity. Our standard of living rises not because we all work harder, but because an hour of our labor yields so much more than it used to. Now, what's interesting, I can talk about numbers in the United States, but they're they're largely the same directionally for Europe. And in the U.S., for 250 years, 
we've never had unemployment above 10%, except the Great Depression, which wasn't caused by technology. Unemployment's never been above 10%. And that's pretty interesting because I spent a fair amount of time, and I, don't, I didn't put this in the book, but I spent a fair amount of time trying to figure out the half-life of a job. In other words, and what I came up to was 50 years. In other words, every 50 years, I think half of all jobs vanish. I think if you look back to 1970 to now, half of jobs are gone. A lot of manufacturing jobs. Uh, I mean, just a lot of things. Typewriter repair people and telephone operators, switchboard people, and all of it. Photocopiers and all these things. It's all gone. Half of it. And then I think between 1920 and 1970, we lost half the jobs. A lot of farm jobs were lost then. Between 1870 and 1920, we lost half the jobs, more farm jobs. And now, so you have to say, well, how can you always lose half your jobs every half century and never have unemployment? Like something's going on there. It's not like it spiked briefly because of steam, or it spiked briefly because you invented the assembly line, or it spiked briefly because you electrified industry. Because you, you, you replaced animals with steam and all those teamsters lost their jobs. It didn't go up. And why would it? Like, you can't even spot that in the unemployment numbers. You can't even see. If I say, hey, where, where did all the teamsters lose their jobs in there? Um, and the reason is, is because what technology does is it multiplies what people are able to do. It increases productivity. And the minute you invent a new technology, you increase people's productivity. And that's good for people. And if you don't think that, then you should advocate that everybody be required by law to work with one arm tied behind their back. If everybody were required to work with one arm tied behind their back, you would create an enormous number of jobs because you now need a bunch more people to do anything, to rake your lawn and to build a car. But everybody's productivity would be down because they could only do half as much. So wages would plummet. Conversely, if you could give everybody on the planet a third arm, hey, everybody, you got a third arm, then all of a sudden you could do more. Your productivity's up and wages rise and all these new jobs are created. And that's what AI does. AI makes everybody smarter and robotics makes everybody have another arm. And these are good for humans. If, if you don't think they're good for humans, it's like, the only way you can say AI is not good for humans is to say ignorance is better than knowledge. And I don't believe that. And the only way you can say robots aren't good is to say, I think, that we should all be less productive than more productive. And you give the great example that you often hear about, oh, Google Translates touted as the prime example of technology putting people out of work. It'd be great to share how that isn't true or how that would play out when that happens. The line goes, Google Translate can translate a document as well as a human and a human translator. And then you say, well, what's that going to do to human translators? And by everything I've read, the number of human translators we're going to need is going up dramatically. And you say, well, how can that be? And it's because the minute you say, okay, we can translate emails for free. Everybody's like, well, I will start doing business in China. I will start doing business in India. I will start doing business elsewhere because I can do it so inexpensively. And then, oh, there's a contract? Well, we need somebody to translate the contract. I'm not going to use you know, Google for that. Oh, there's a phone call. Well, we need a translator for that. Oh, we need to localize our product in that language. Oh, 
we need we need marketing copy. We need good slogans in that language. Okay, let's get a translator. And all of a sudden, because you because you took the low value thing, hey, how do I translate this email and got rid of it? You reduced the price of that to zero. You like supercharged it all. Um, I assume these. I mean, I don't, I don't know if if they're the same in Europe as in the U.S., but you know we have. TurboTax to do our taxes. Well, they did not eliminate the need for tax uh, uh, accountants. We have QuickBooks. So I didn't eliminate the need for accountants. We have Rocket Lawyer to do contracts. I didn't eliminate the need for lawyers. And we have the open source movement. That didn't eliminate the need for programmers. All of those things are growing because technology takes some aspect of it and lowers the cost and that causes all these new opportunities to happen. It's hard to see it. It's hard to, and I'm very sympathetic to people who look at that and and get worried, who say, oh, self-driving cars are coming. I'm a trucker. I'm in bad shape. It's, and I understand, like, that's your livelihood and, and all of the rest. But um, the, this, the, these are great opportunities because by lowering the cost, by lowering the cost of something, you, you, you cause people to consume more of it. And when they consume more of it, you create all these new opportunities. We do fear technology. You give the history of that because when people look back in 100 years on us and stuff we would have feared, it's like us looking back, say, to 1891 when people widely feared electricity. And I love the story you told about Benjamin Harrison, President Benjamin Harrison. He was the first president who had electricity in the White House, but he was afraid of it. So he he and his wife were afraid of it. They would never touch the light switches. And so they had the servants turn the lights on and off because they were like uh, afraid of it. But it goes way back. You're right. Everybody knows the story of when the looms were automated in France, people thought they were going to put them out of work, the loom operators. And so they took their wooden shoes, their sabots off and threw them into the machinery to break it. And they gave us the word sabotage. There were the thresher riots in 1820 in England that People thought the automatic thresher was going to put them out of work. Uh, you had the the spinning jenny. They were going to burn down the house of the guy that invented that. When the London Times um, was the first issue was printed with steam power instead of animal power, there the the people that did the animals threatened to destroy the machinery, and they had to be kind of talked off the ledge. I mean, it's the history of. Look, and, and people are only afraid of only afraid of labor saving technology. Like nobody throws a shoe in an air conditioner or something like that. That doesn't <laughs> put anybody out of work. But if it's yeah. a labor saving technology, people think that's bad for me. And it's rare that it is. Now look, half of jobs are lost every fifty years. Half of jobs are lost. But the great thing about humans is we uh we're all capable of learning things, all capable of learning new things. That's our great, you know, people tell me, ask me all the time. Number one question I get is what should my kids study today to be relevant in the future, to have work in the future? And I think back, I'm 50 years old. I think back to when I was in high school, there was only one class I could have taken then that would be really helpful to me today. And that's typing. Uh, that was it. That's all I could have taken. And yet I'm okay. And the things I learned in university, they aren't what I do on a daily basis in my job. Most people, I mean, if, if you're a technician, you probably learned in school, but then you apprenticed. Um, so most of us, what we do in our day-to-day job, we learned 
kind of as we went. And all humans are capable of doing this. And so I don't actually think it really matters kind of what you study. I really don't. Learn how to learn. Learn how to teach yourself new things. Learn how to work in teams with others. Learn how to read body language and communicate clearly and all of that. And you're going to be fine. You're absolutely going to be fine. Communication and human skills, as you say in the book. And you have an online interactive version of a can of robot take your job quiz on byronreese.com. Yes, it's 10 questions that try to say, is a job able to be automated? Very few actually are. Oftentimes, things within a job can be automated, but the whole job can't be. And the kinds of questions are things like, are two days of your job exactly the same? Does your job require any mobility? Does your job require empathy with people? And so it's got 10 of those questions, and then it scores the jobs. And uh, we're going to release a report that kind of sums it all up, but very few jobs actually can technology, you know, there are, you know, order taker at a fast food place. Technology can probably do that. That job will probably be eliminated. There are more like that. People may be familiar with a piece of research that came out of Oxford a few years ago about technology. And it was by these two guys named uh, Frey and Osborne. And in this, the way it's reported is that technology is going to destroy 48% of all jobs. That was how it's reported and in some reasonably short period of time. If you read it, that isn't actually what they say. They say that a high percentage of things that people do can be automated. but that isn't the same as saying the job is destroyed. The OECD, which is non-governmental, I mean, non-partisan, non-governmental, really, came to the conclusion that if you say, well, what jobs can current technology actually del- eliminate? They think it's about 10%. And I would say that may be low. I mean, because we do lose jobs regularly, but I don't know that we're losing jobs any faster or slower now than we were when steam came out. When the internet came out, frankly, you don't have to go back to Steam. When the consumer internet came out, it destroyed all kinds of jobs, and yet you don't see a bump in unemployment. I mean, if I were to ask you, do you think the consumer internet created or destroyed more jobs? It's it's hard to say and that it destroyed more jobs than it created because it created all these new things. All these newly available travel agents and stockbrokers could do new things. Oh, and I do want to say one more thing, and this isn't in the book. But this is really, I think, important because what people say to me, they say the following, <clears throat> Byron, look, I hear what you're saying and, and, and I agree to a point, but here's the problem. Technology is great at creating high pay, high skilled jobs like a geneticist, but technology destroys low skilled low-wage jobs like order taker at a fast food place. And then they say, do you really think that order taker at the fast food place has the skills to become a geneticist? Do the people losing their job have the skills to do the new jobs? And you say, well, I guess they don't. But that isn't what happens at all. What happens is a university biology professor becomes a geneticist. And then a high school biology teacher gets a university job. Then the part-time substitute teacher 
gets hired on full-time at the high school, all the way down the line. The question isn't, can that person at the bottom of the economic food chain do that new job at the top? The question is, can everybody do a job a little harder than the job they have today? That's it, a little harder. And if the answer to that is yes, which I think it is, then that's 250 years of economic history in the West. Technology makes great new jobs, destroys bad jobs, and everybody shifts up a notch. Then it creates new jobs, destroys bad jobs, everybody shifts up a notch, and so on. And so it's if, if you're in a, a part of the world and you're about to lose your job and the factory's about to close, it's hard to see that. And And we as a society could do a lot better job of helping people through these transitions. But it isn't dire. It isn't dire. We, we're creating jobs. There's an infinite number of jobs in the universe. Jobs are created instantly. When you take something like a lump of clay and you add labor and technology to it and you make something else like a vase and whatever value you can add, that's a wage. And technology, by the way, lets you add more value. So technology increases wages. And so there's an infinite number of jobs. That's why you can never have technology really cause unemployment because all we do is take the technology and make up a bunch of new jobs forever. And that's what we've done. And that's what we will continue to do. That's fantastic. And it's a, it's a great way to finish it. I, there's so much more in the book that we could have got through. I had so yeah, we didn't get to consciousness. <laughs> Can machines be conscious? And, and, uh, all of the other stuff. Yeah, that, cyber warfare. That yeah. You could, I mean, this book is so, comprehensive it covers absolutely everything but there's one piece i'd love to finish on and it's it's going back to something you said earlier on both about the human purpose element being so important the humanity part and also you mentioned that negative bias we have where we are wired to see that as a bear and not a rock to save us that's there to actually save us but i'm going to quote this piece from the book because i i love this it was kind of dropped in there you didn't make a big deal about this but it meant a lot to me and i think i'd love to pull it out and quote it perhaps we are driven towards perpetual progress by our mild discontent with the present no matter how good things may be we can always picture them a little better and the drive to relentlessly move forward and upward is our distinctive characteristic maybe we aren't so much homo sapiens the reasoning man as we are homo dissatisfactus we're the dissatisfied person yeah i i had a bunch more i wrote about that that, that my editor cut there's thirty thousand words that got cut out of that book uh but i went on to say you know beavers have been building dams for a hundred thousand years they don't really show any sign of getting any better you know they're not hydraulic they don't generate power to cool the beavers den we don't actually see any animals. I mean, we see animals adapting to their environment, but we don't see other animals make progress the way we do, that we relentlessly march forward. I've heard it said, and I don't want to, um, this could just be pseudoscience, but I have heard it said that our circadian clock, if you, if you take people's sense of time away, like you, you're in a darkened, you're in a room that with no windows, but you have lights. And you have no clocks. So you don't know what time it is. And you just live. Uh, that you settle down to a 25-hour day. That's about what you naturally would get into. Whereas animals are at 24 hours. So they're in sync, as it were, with the world. They live. They, their internal daily clock fits the world. But ours doesn't. We're out of step. 
we're just constantly a little bit uh, out of phase with the world around us. And that's what gives us the wanderlust. And that's what gives us the, the drive forward. And that's what gives us all of this kind of angst that makes us constantly unsatisfied and constantly uh, trying to make things better. You know, that's why we go to the stars and that's why all of it, why climb the highest mountain, you know, why swim the English channel? It's because we're somehow just a little bit out of sync with the world around us. I will close my part by saying that I believe in us. I really do. I do think that humans are fundamentally more about building than destroying. As I said earlier, we created civilization. We've learned how to progressively get along. We've ended so many terrible things around the world, legalized slavery and the subjugation of women and uh, torture is entertainment. You know, you used to torture people and everybody would watch and it was fun and all of the rest, you know, and, and along the way we've, we've, we've tried to bring uh, developed empathy for other people and for, for, and we extend that circle of empathy and we try to bring uh, those less able along with us. And, you know, we, we don't ruthlessly weed them out and, I really believe in us. And we, you know, we sent a probe to into space, the Voyager probes off billions of years, billions of miles into nowhere with a message of friendship, just because we expect somebody's out there and they want to be friendly too. It's like, I, I believe in us. And I think that if you look at everything we've come through, we've gone through all the hard stuff already we had plagues and we had all of these things and now we're at this point where you know there's never been enough of the good stuff for everybody so some people got it and some people didn't and we're finally at a point where there can be enough of the good stuff for everybody and we can all kind of get there together we can all live in these utopias that we've only been able to imagine in the past and i deeply deeply believe that it isn't just like a book i wrote but that's what i believe deep down in my heart and that comes across in the book, Byron. So you did a great job in that. And if people want to find out more about you, your work, the book, the podcast, where can they find you? I am the easiest person in the world to find. My name is Byron Reese, B-Y-R-O-N-R-E-E-S-E. And I'm Byron Reese on Twitter, ByronReese.com, Byron Reese at Gmail. I mean, I'm so easy to find. This book is called The Fourth Age, and you can get it, you know, wherever you get books. Serial entrepreneur, founder and CEO of GigaOM, and author of The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity, and Believer in Humanity, Byron Reese. thank you for joining us. I had a great time.